And I want to read verses 22 and 23. Now we covered verses 18 through 25 last week. But 22 and 23 are very important verses. Because after Matthew tells the story that Mary is going to uh, have a baby, even though she's had no relationships with a man, he goes on and he explains that event in verse 22. He says, so all of this was done that, so that, in order that, it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, meaning the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and we just died, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us, or God is with us. Now, the interesting thing is he is quoting from Isaiah 7.14. And he's saying that Jesus' virgin birth was a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, which he called a prophecy which was spoken by the Lord. But when you go back and you look at Isaiah 7.14, it doesn't look like it's talking about Jesus' birth at all. So on what basis does Matthew quote this Old Testament passage? The New Testament writers are quoting Old Testament passages all the time. And they're saying that the things that are happening in their lifetimes are fulfillment of these Old Testament passages. And when you go back and look at the Old Testament passages, sometimes they even misquote the Old Testament passage. Sometimes they add words. Sometimes they change words. And when you look at the Old Testament passage in its context, it doesn't look like anything that the New Testament writers say that it refers to. So what I thought we'd do today is go back to the Isaiah 7.14 passage. And let's find out on what basis does Matthew make the claim that this verse uh, refers to the virgin birth of Christ. Because when you look at Matthew 7.14 in context, within its historical context, it doesn't look like it has anything to do with Christ's birth. It looks like Matthew quotes it totally out of context. And that he's butchering the scripture. And we're going to find out exactly what's happening. So if you look at Isaiah 7.14, let's find out if Matthew was justified in using this verse. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself, this is Isaiah 7.14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, it's obvious that uh, that's the verse that Matthew quoted. But when you look at Matthew 7.14, Matthew is speaking to somebody, isn't he? He says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Who in the world is Isaiah, uh, the Lord, speaking to through Isaiah? Who is the you in that passage? Look, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now remember when Isaiah writes this, and this is something you need to mark down. This verse is written in 735 B.C. Okay, You're going to need to remember that because I'm going to come back to that date. And I'm going to say, what's the date? And you're going to say, what? 
735 B.C. Okay, don't forget that. He's writing this in 735 B.C. and he's writing it to someone. The Lord will give you, he says in 735 B.C., a sign. Okay. Now, during this period of 735 B.C., the promised land, God's kingdom, is divided in two. Between the north and the south. The northern kingdom, made up of ten tribes. The southern kingdom, made up of two tribes. 735, what you need to know, the land is divided between north and south. And all you need to remember is this. The north is evil. Now that's not hard for some southerners to remember, is it? The north is evil. And the south has God's blessing. Okay? So let me give you the background. Here's what happened. The tribes in the north have formed an alliance okay, against the south. Sounds like the Civil War, doesn't it? The north has formed an alliance against the south. Now go back to chapter 7 and verse 1. And here's what it says. 7-1. And this is a summary statement. Okay? The details are coming later. This is a summary statement. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went to Jerusalem to make war against it. Now three people are mentioned here, and the first person that's mentioned in verse 1 is Ahaz. He's the king of the south. The group that God's blessing, Ahaz, king of the south. Two other people are mentioned. Rezin and Pekah. They are the kings of the north. One's the king of Syria, and the other is the king of Israel. That is in the north. And they form this alliance against the south. Notice what it says. They have a goal. Their goal is to make war against the south. Do you see that toward the end of verse 7? They want to conquer the south. Why do they want to conquer the south? Because they want to get King Ahaz out of there and put their man in. And then they're going to unite together and they're going to wage war against the great empire called Assyria. Now, not Syria, not here, not this. Assyria. Assyria was a major empire like Babylon and, and Greece, you know, under Alexander the Great. This was the first great world power. And they know that this world power is coming down to take their land, and they need to make war against Assyria. Uh, Assyria, the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. You remember the story of Jonah. And they need King Ahaz to get on their side, and he says, no, I'm not going to get on your side. I'm not going to fight this world power. They'll wipe us off the map. And they say, well, we need your people for soldiers. We need your troops to fight the war. So their plan was to get rid of Ahaz and put in their own man who would work with them. Does that make sense to you? Okay, that's the summary statement. Okay. Now look at 
the end of verse 7. Here's the outcome, what the outcome would be. But they could not prevail against it. The north could not prevail against Ahaz and get rid of him. They're not successful. So there's your summary. Now what we have are the details, and starting in verse 2 you have the details. Look at Ahaz's alarm. And it was told to the house of David, that's the southern kingdom, saying Syria's troops, that's the northern kingdom, are deployed in Ephraim. And so his heart, that's Ahaz's heart, and the heart of his people were moved as trees of the woods are moved in the wind. When he hears that the northern kingdom is about to invade him, he starts shaking like a leaf. That's what it means, the tree is moving in the wind. He shakes like a leaf. He's uh, shaking in his boots. Now, what's he going to do? What's he going to do when those northern people come against him? Ah, he's got a plan. He'll form his own alliance. He'll go to Nineveh. And say, hey, we'll be subject to you if you'll just protect us from the north. So that's his plan. Form his own alliance with the Ninevites, the pagans. So now God speaks. Now look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jehub, your son. And at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, on the highway of the fuller's field and say to him say to Ahaz take heed and be quiet do not fear stop shaking like a leaf or be faint hearted for these two stubs that's the two kings of the north of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and the son of Ramallah, that's Pekin, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramallah have plotted against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them. We'll put our own man over them, the son of Tabal. And thus says the Lord, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, the northern kingdom, will be broken. The north will be broken. And so it will not be a people. It will be wiped off the face of the map. The head of Ephraim is Syria. And the head of Samaria, Syria is Ramallah's son, Pekin, the other king of the north. If you believe, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So, what we have here is we have God, through Isaiah, speaking to Ahaz. And he says, don't worry about these guys. Stop your shaking in your boots. They're not going to prevail against you. In fact, they're just going to totally be decimated. From anything to worry about, but you have to believe. That's what he says down Verse into verse 9. You must believe. You must take God at His word. That's what faith is. Taking God at His word. So this message that we have is a message to Ahaz. Does that make sense to you so far? Now, God now issues a challenge. Look at verse 10. 
Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, king of the south, saying, Ask for a sign. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. So, what we have is God says to Ahaz, don't worry. You don't have to worry about the north. You don't have to worry about being deposed. They're going to fall. All you have to do is believe. And now all I'm asking you to do is just ask me for a sign. I'll prove to you that I'm trustworthy. Ask me for it. You can be a heavenly sign. What do you want? Flash of lightning? Bam! I'll give it to you. What do you want? An earthquake? In the sea? That's what you want? I'll give it to you. Just ask for a sign. I'll prove that what I'm saying is true and that you can count on it. Just ask for a sign. Now look at verse 12. We have Ahaz's reaction. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. God says, ask, and Ahaz says what? No, I won't ask. And his explanation is, I'm not going to test the Lord. I don't need a sign. That sounds humble, doesn't it? Let me tell you, when God asks you to do something, guess what you're to do? You're to do it. You know why he says, no, I'm not going to ask? Because he's taking the, he's got his own plans for survival. He doesn't need God. He's going to make an alliance with Nineveh. They'll protect him. He doesn't need God's protection. So he says, no, I'm not going to ask, see? So he has his own plan for survival, and he doesn't feel that he needs God. Now that's the context. Okay, the context. Now look at the content of the prophecy. Verse 13. Verse 13. Then he said, God said, Hear, O house of David, that's the southern kingdom, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? That's what Isaiah says and inspired. And then he says this. Therefore, because you only ask for a sign, watch this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Who's he going to give it to? Ahaz, okay. The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. So this is God speaking through Isaiah to Ahaz. That's the context and that's the content. It's about a virgin in Ahaz's day who's going to have a son, and that's going to be the sign. Now, verse 14 says, You shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay? So, we want to see who the son is that's going to be born. Okay? And we need to find out who this virgin is in Ahaz's day that's going to have the child. So, the son is Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. That's very important. So here is the situation. When this child is born, that will be a sign to Ahaz in the southern kingdom that God is with us. And if God's with you, what? Who can be against you? You and God are a majority. So he says, when this child's born, this will be a sign... You don't have to make an alliance with anybody else. God is on your side. 
He will intervene. God is with us in this fight. Okay? Look what it says about the age of this child. Very interesting. Very interesting comment. Verse 15. Curds and honey he showed you. That he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land that you dread, that's the northern kingdom, will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, not only will this child when he's born is going to be a sign that God's with us, before this child knows the difference between right and wrong, the northern kingdom is going to be destroyed and the two kings are going to be gone. Okay? Now, it's talking about an age of accountability here. Before the child knows the difference between evil and good, before he reaches the age of accountability, those two kings up north are going to be gone. Now, the Jews believed in an age of accountability. Uh, many Baptists ask questions. When's the age of accountability? Other Christians say, when's the age of accountability? We really can't answer that. It's hard for us to answer. But if you ask the Jews, when, when was the age of accountability? They'd say about 12 or 13. Up until that time, the child was led by a tutor. The child was instructed in the law by his father. But at the age of 12 or 13... He had a bar mitzvah. And he became a son of the, what? Law, that he could interpret it and discern the law for himself. So before this child reaches, let's say, 13, those two kings in the north, Rezin and Pekin, are going to be out on their ear. Now, I ask you to remember a date. Do you remember that day? 735. Okay, now let's come back toward A.D., Take off 13 years, it now becomes 722. Is that right? 722 B.C. Does anybody know what happened in 722 B.C.? Well, my students know what happened in 722 B.C. Assyria invaded the north, and guess what it did? Wiped it out! And that prophecy right there was fulfilled. Before that child reached the age of accountability, those two northern kings were gone. He didn't have to form any alliance. All he had to do was trust God, and God gave him a sign. And the sign was that that child would be born. But that's not all. Something was going to happen before that date. Before 722. Before the kings were finally destroyed and the northern kingdom was destroyed. Let me show you what's going to happen before that date. Look over chapter 8 and verse 4. Chapter 8 and verse 4. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Syria, that's the northern kingdom, will be taken away before the king of Syria. Before the child can uh, say a whole sentence intelligently. Before the child can introduce you when you walk into the room and he says, My father and my mother. Before he can do that, something's going to happen. You know when a child can start putting sentences together? 
Now they can say dada, you know, when they're nine months old or something. Well, they start, well, about three years old, two, three years old. They can start actually putting sentences together where everybody can understand. Well, 735. Take away three years from that. 732. Do you know what happened in 732? Well, Assyria came in. Syria came in and hit the northern kingdom three times. The last time in 722 just wiped them out. But in 732, before a child can put a sentence together, Syria came in and took the spoils from that country, stripped the country of its riches, and therefore this prophecy was fulfilled. Now, so we have a child who's going to be born, who's assigned, and he's assigned to whom? Ahaz and the southern kingdom. Now, who's the father of this son, this child? And who's the mother of this child? The father of this child that's going to be born is Isaiah the prophet. Now, Isaiah already has one child. And you saw that back in 7-3, didn't you? The child's name is Shear Jashub. You shall, you and your child, son, Shear Jashub, shall go to Ahab. He already has one son, and evidently, this is a son from a first marriage, and his wife has died. He's not married now. But he's going to have another son, and the mother of that son is found in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahar Shal Al Hash Baz. That's going to be the name of the son that's born. Watch this. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberachiah. Okay? Now watch this. Here's the mother. Then I went to the prophetess. I went to the prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And then the prophecy before the child can say, My father and my mother, the spoils of the northern kingdom will be destroyed. So here's the mother. The mother's the prophetess. Now, back in 714, when this prophecy was made, she was a virgin. A prophetess who was a virgin. But, when she has her child, she has that child through natural means. And the natural means is that Isaiah marries her and they have a child. Okay? So, this is what you have. She conceives through natural means, but when the prophecy was made, behold, a virgin shall conceive. He was referring to the prophetess, who was a virgin at the time. But Isaiah marries her, they have a child, and that's the child's name. Okay? Now, the rest of the prophet. Look what it says. Make sure that you understand this is the context. This is the rest of the story. In verse 5. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse 
the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, and rejoiced in Rezin and in Ramallah's son, the two kings of the north. Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings over them the waters of the rivers, strong and mighty. It's going to be like a flood comes in and just takes them away. The king of Assyria in all of his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all these banks. He will pass through Judah, the southern kingdom. He won't hurt you. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. He'll go north to the neck. Do you see that? And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from foreign countries. Gird yourselves and be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together. Yeah, plot. Try to form alliances, you northern kingdoms. Do everything that you can. It will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. Here's the reason. For God is with us. God is with the southern kingdom. Now, that's the prophecy. God has assured the southern kingdom and Ahab that they're not going to be destroyed and they don't even have to worry about anybody. Because God's with them. How do you know God's with us? How do we know that? I'm going to give you a sign. You should ask me for a sign to prove that I'm with you. All you want, I'll give you one myself. A son's going to be born to a virgin. Prophets. She's going to have a child, and when he's born, that'll be the sign. They'll come in and take all the spoils of the northern kingdom, and then Assyria will come in and wipe out the northern kingdom. Now, there's the text. Now, Evelyn had an assignment at Dallas Theological Seminary a few weeks ago. She had to take a passage from the Old Testament that was quoted in the book of Hebrews to try to figure out how the writer of Hebrews used it. And let me tell you, when you try to do that, you are, you've got yourself in a big mess. Because how in the world do these New Testament writers quote these Old Testament passages that literally had a fulfillment in the Old Testament during that time and that place, and then sort of just quote it out of context and say, now this applies to the virgin birth, you know. Seem, is that what it looks like it applies to? Jesus' birth? It looks like it applies to this kid's birth, doesn't it? Now I want to say something that's very interesting. It's very important. I don't know if everybody will get it, but this is something that's important. In most of our evangelical schools, we are told that the way to interpret Scripture is through a grammatical, historical interpretation of the text. That means you look at the text, you look at the grammar of the text, you try to understand the text, look at it, it's a, it's a historical context, and that's the meaning of the text. Well, if you do that, what's the meaning of the text? God's giving Ahaz a sign. Isn't that what the meaning of the text is? If you interpret that passage just that way, you miss Jesus. You could ask a Jewish rabbi to interpret this passage that we just read, and guess how he would interpret it? Just like we did this morning. Because I just gave you a grammatical, historical interpretation of the text. 
And I don't see Jesus in there anyway. But guess what? When Matthew quotes it, guess what he sees? He sees Jesus. So we discover something. That the method that Dallas Theological Seminary and Griswold College and Trent Evangelical Divinity School and Gordon-Conwell and Westminster Seminary and Southwest Baptist Seminary, the basic understanding that they teach, is good as far as it goes, but that's not how Matthew did it. He understood that this text had a historical fulfillment. He understood the historical grammatical method of interpreting Scripture, but he didn't stop there. He looked at that Scripture and he says, you know something, it has a deeper meaning. It has a further meaning that's not apparent on the surface of the text. And that's the meaning he gave. You see, New Testament writers, and I would say all Jews of Matthew's day, understood that the Old Testament scriptures were made up of divine book. They believed that the Old Testament was divine, didn't they? That it had God as its author. And therefore, because the Old Testament was divine, it was different than any other literature in existence. Because God was its author. When Homer wrote Homer, guess who the author was? I mean, Homer wrote the Iliad, guess who the author was? Homer. <laughs> it was a human text. But the Jews of Jesus' day and Matthew's day realized that the Old Testament was a divine book, and therefore it was different than all other writings. And therefore, they believed that the Old Testament text had a human meaning that the original author intended, but it also had a divine meaning that the heavenly author intended. A divine meaning and a human meaning. And what the original author intended for his audience, and we know what Isaiah meant for his audience, don't we? We just read it. It meant what? God was going to give Ahaz a sign, right? What the original author meant for his audience was not the only and the final meaning of the text. Because the divine author had a meaning for the text as well. A further meaning to be found in the text. Which was going to be fulfilled in a different historical context for a different group of people. So you have a human meaning and you have a divine meaning. And guess what? Many times, the divine meaning was hidden from the original authors. Now, you should know this. You've studied the Bible long enough. Peter says that prophets of old wrote things that they didn't even understand they were writing. They just wrote it. They were inspired. They didn't know that it had any future fulfillment. They thought they were just writing for their days. That's what Peter said. So, what we have when we look at the Old Testament, we say this. This is what New Testament scholars, evangelical scholars today are saying. When you look at the Old Testament, there needs, the Old Testament needs to be given a first reading and a second reading. The Old Testament needs to be given a first reading and then it needs to be given a second reading. The first reading to discover the original intent of the human author. 
and then the second reading to discover the prophetic intent of the divine author. And this is called census plenier, a fuller meaning of the text. Census plenier. Every Jew in Matthew's day did this when they studied the Old Testament. They looked for a human meaning, and then they looked for a divine meaning. The Qumran community, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, you're all familiar with that? They did the same thing. They would look at that text, and they would find the human meaning, what it meant for its time, and then they would say, hey, this looks like it might be talking about a future prophet. The difference between the average Jew and, let's say, Matthew, when they interpreted the text, was this. The New Testament writers were inspired. Would you say that Matthew was an inspired writer? Yes, the New Testament writers were inspired. And because they were inspired, they were given insight to discover the correct interpretation of the text. So while the people in the Dead Sea community may not have understood the real meaning of that text, the future meaning, Matthew did, because Matthew himself was inspired. Matthew was as inspired as Isaiah was inspired. And God gives Matthew insight into the divine meaning of this text for his day and age, and what he says is that text not only pointed to Isaiah's son, but it had a prophetic meaning that pointed to the birth of Jesus Christ. So, Matthew correctly interprets Isaiah 7.14. He does it exactly the right way. You say, well, boy, if we took that kind of way of interpreting Scripture, we could give any Old Testament passage any meaning we wanted to. All we'd have to say is, oh, there's a hidden meaning here, and here's what it means. And a lot of people do that. And they're always wrong. Matthew can do it because he's inspired. You're not. <laughs> and that's the difference. Matthew can do it because he's inspired, and he is given the real meaning, the prophetic meaning, the fuller meaning of the text, and we're not inspired. That's why we can't do that. And only Matthew and the New Testament writers can. So Matthew perceives correctly the divine meaning of the text. So, just as this child was assigned to Ahab, that God was with them, Jesus' birth was assigned to Israel of his day, that God was with them and hadn't forsaken them. And guess what? If God is with Israel in Jesus' day and age, that means they don't have to compromise with the Roman Empire to survive. They don't have to make deals to survive. Why? God's with them. They don't have to try to overthrow the Roman Empire with violence like the Zealots did. Why don't you try to do that? Because God's with you. You don't have to do that. He'll take care of you. This text for Matthew's day is the same has the same meaning as the text for Isaiah's day. It is saying that you can trust God in any situation, trust Him to deliver you, have faith, take Him at His word, and He'll come through every time. And so when we see Jesus standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, Don't you know I can put you to death? And all Jesus had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. And he would escape death. But guess what? He stood there and he trusted the Father. And they put him to death. 
And they said, we got rid of him. Three days later, God came through and Jesus was raised from the dead. Who won? Rome or Jesus? Could Rome put him to death again? No, he was resurrected. Who won the battle? Jesus won the battle. How did he win it? Through violence? No. Through compromise? No. By trusting totally in his heavenly Father. And that's the purpose of the virgin birth. It is to move us, not only, not only Matthew's audience, but those of us who read Matthew's gospel, to move us to trust God in the same way that we will become a people of faith, not people who take the bull by the horns and say, we'll work out this situation. We don't need God. No, that is not humility. That's false humility. That's the opposite of humility. That's pride. This passage gives us, motivates us to be a people of faith. And therefore, we can say with the writer of that creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, resurrected, sends into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come, the judge and the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this passage. When we look at the Old Testament quotes that the New Testament writers pen, they're so confusing when we use our brains and try to figure out what it means. But here, Lord, we've seen one example of just how a New Testament writer, in this case Matthew, accurately used an Old Testament passage in discerning the divine meaning of the text. And it was written to his people 80 years later, 60 years later, that they would be people of faith. And Lord, we're reading it today, and it's meant the same for us. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.